Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Matthew 6, 7. Hi, I'm Rob West. Fortunately, Jesus didn't stop there. He goes on to give us the Lord's Prayer as the way we should bring our needs to God. But do we sometimes skim over part of it, the part about provision? I'll talk about that today, and then it's on to your calls at 800-525-7000. That's 800-525-7000. This is MoneyWise Live, biblical wisdom for your financial journey. Well, I want to talk about the place in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew six eleven, where Jesus instructs his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. It's a very important verse that we tend to take for granted, but we shouldn't. Jesus is teaching his disciples and us that God is our provider, and we're to ask him to provide for our needs. And the most basic physical need is food. Our friend Pastor David Platt has written about this, reminding us that the verse is intended to destroy our pride. How often do we ask God to provide us with the food and water that we'll need today, and to thank Him for doing so, especially these days when prices are so high? When we say those words in the Lord's Prayer, do we really mean them? I think sometimes we're just reciting words because we forget that only God can provide us with the food and water we need to survive. He, of course, owns everything. We may think that our actions, earning and saving money, provide those things, but that's never the case. Even our ability to earn money comes from God. We're only reminded that God is our real provider when we sense that those things are about to be taken from us, and we begin to feel hunger and thirst. But this is about more than making money to buy food. We hunger for many other things in this world. Peace, love, purpose, healthy relationships, you name it. The Lord's Prayer is an example of how we should pray for all of those things. Jesus wants us to go before our Holy Father in prayer and ask for everything we need, humbly admit that only He can provide them. Give us this day our daily bread probably had more immediate importance 2,000 years ago when famine was always a real possibility. It may seem like an odd request to us because we live in the richest nation in history. Most of us, with some exceptions, never worry about where our next meal is coming from. It seems especially odd when many of us actually need less food, not more. But it's still important to pray for God's daily provision, even in America, because that prayer will keep you from thinking you can provide for your daily needs without God. In other words, it's a bulwark against prideful thinking that we or the things of this world provide what we need. Jesus knew that we're prone to that kind of thinking. That's why those words are in the Lord's Prayer, and that's why we should take them seriously. All this really shows how dangerous materialism can be. We should take a hard look at how much we're conforming to disturbing trends in Western Christianity. Maybe we really believe we can sustain our lives all in our own, without God. And that's a reason that many of us are so casual about prayer in general. In addition to warning about pride, Jesus is also telling us that our Father in heaven wants to give us every good and perfect gift. A few verses later in Matthew 6, he tells his disciples, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What that means is we really don't need to worry about bread or water or money. 
We need God, and prayer reminds us of that, and of God's promise that He'll provide all of those things. In his article about this, David Platt goes on to say that in today's wealthy culture, we should ask God to deliver us from what he calls self-sustaining Christian lives. We must acknowledge daily that we can't sustain ourselves. Of course, with every believer, that begins by admitting that we need Christ as our Savior. But it must also extend into every area of our lives, that we need God to sustain us with even our most basic needs. And that's how we can avoid the pride that comes from materialism. No matter how much money we make, how big a house we live in, or how fancy the car we drive, we don't really need those things. We only need God. So when we say those words, give us this day our daily bread, we need to really mean them and thank God for providing it. Oh, and one more thing. We can show our thankfulness through generosity. Giving breaks the power that money has over us and demonstrates our faith that God will meet our needs. All right, your calls are next on these Bible verses or anything else financial. The number to call is 800-525-7000. I'm Rob West, and we'll be right back. Well, it's great to have you with us today on Money Wise Live as we apply the wisdom from the Word of God to your financial decisions and choices. We're going to turn the corner to your questions today. What's on your mind, financially speaking? We'd love to hear from you. We've got some lines open. The number to call is 800-525-7000. We'll begin today in Florida. Yvonne, thank you for calling. Go right ahead. Um, hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, yes, ma'am. Rob. Um, I am a, a, a recent widower, and I have a home that is financed under VA, and um, yes. one of the perks with trying to sell it was to give uh, another buyer the um, ability to assume my mortgage, and yes. I've gotten some information from the uh, mortgage company, the uh, the bank that has the loan, um, but it's it's not real clear how it would would set for me as far as the seller goes. I know it's, there's all kinds of advantages for the buyer, and this would all be done through the mortgage company. They have to qualify and everything like that, so it would be sure. you know, perfectly legitimate kind of a transaction going on here. But what worries me is there's something that says uh, in the paperwork, credit and liability, the seller's credit is notated to show an assumption was processed credit reporting on the seller's account stops. However, the account will still appear on the seller's credit until the buyer refinances or sells the property, which could be, you know, years in the future. So I didn't know how that could possibly affect me. Yes. Well, the key here is, first of all, you're right. This is a huge benefit, especially given where rates are right now. Most mortgages, conventional mortgages these days, are not assumable. VA loans are. So that makes it very attractive as we've had these rates rising sharply. And when you can assume someone's VA mortgage, you get the original lower interest rate. Uh, The key here for you is uh, what's called a release of liability from the lender. And so your liability 
liability doesn't go away automatically when another person assumes your VA mortgage. So you'll just want to call them and confirm with the lender that in writing that a release of liability will be provided after the sale. Uh, if they were unwilling to provide this, then that would be a, a showstopper for me because that would be like co-signing a loan. But uh, I'm assuming they would provide that. There's no reason why they wouldn't. Uh, and then you'll just want to clarify as to the credit report. It would not surprise me that that account will stay on your credit report. What I would not want to be the case is for the new uh, owner's payment history to now start reflecting on your credit. Um, but that shouldn't happen once that release of liability occurs because you're no longer responsible for it and therefore that reporting should stop as of that release date. And then that history uh, up until that point would remain on the credit report. That would be very typical, but there wouldn't be any new information reported. And as far as uh, the lender is concerned, uh, you are no longer liable for that mortgage. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. So ask the, them that I, you know, to verify that they would give me a release of liability when this transaction is all completed. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay, okay. All right, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so it, it shouldn't be a problem as long as I can get the release of liability. And if it ever did show up on my credit, that paperwork that I have would be able to uh, straighten that out, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly right. No one would really assume these mortgages if they were going to continue to be responsible for them, because not only would they be responsible if that person failed to make the payment, but they would then be obligated and that would hinder their ability to go out and get another loan for a new home. So this is going to be very customary, but you want to make sure everything's done properly just so there are uh, there's no confusion or potential liability for you. So uh, Yvonne, it sounds like you're headed in the right direction. Delighted to hear you were able to uh, make this uh, sale attractive through this VA mortgage. And if we can help you further along the way, uh, don't hesitate to reach out. God bless you. 800-525-7000. We've got some lines open today. We'd love to hear from you with your financial question. Uh, to Howard, New York. Tracy, you're next on the program. Go right ahead. Hi, thank you so much for speaking with me, Rob. Um, sure. I have a question about a home. So I have a two-unit home. It's about two hours away from me. I used to live in it. I have family nearby that location, but I'm not there. And it's been a challenge to get a handyman to, to work on it. So I decided to sell it. And that's when mortgage rates were – yeah, mortgages were uh, a great price <laughs> for the yeah. for the seller, um, sure. but but not so much now. And one agent said to list it at one seventy five, and then that that um, contract is over. And this new agent says, "Oh no, I think maybe a hundred is what you a hundred thousand is what you should list it for." And that's a big wow. difference. Yeah, it um, sure is. So I'm just not sure at this point if I should um, rent it for a little longer or if I should go ahead and take what seems like a really low figure for the house. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, Tracy. Um, although the housing market has cooled a bit nationally, housing prices are only down about six or seven percent. So there's no reason why you should have that wide gap between what uh, and 
you know, conceptually the house was worth prior to the mortgage rates climbing uh, versus today. So something is not right with regard to one of those numbers. So I think the first thing you need to do is really establish what is the true market value. And normally a real estate professional would do what's called a comparative market analysis where they just basically use uh, evaluation of similar properties that have recently sold in the same area to evaluate the property value of your property. Uh, Another way that's a bit more formal that because of this discrepancy may make some sense is for you to pay to have an appraisal done. Uh, It could cost you somewhere between three and $500. So I realize that's not insignificant, but that would take really an academic approach to establishing the market value. And that would be something that you would have available to justify the selling price. But uh, we've got to figure out what is this property worth first for you to determine is it better for you to go ahead and cash out and be done with being a landlord, especially since this is a couple of hours away, which, as you said, makes it more challenging? And if, in fact, you'd like to sell it, let's not just take the word of the, the person that said it's worth only 100000 without doing a little bit more legwork to at least establish the true market value so that you're operating from good information in order to make that decision. Does that make sense? Yeah, excellent. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right. Very good. Yeah. And uh, keep us posted on that, Tracy. I'd love to know how that turns out. Thanks for your call today. God bless you. 800-525-7000 is the number to call. Quickly to Chicago, Chad, you're next on the program. How can I help you? Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Hello? Yes, sir. Look, I have a quick question for you. I just started a part-time job that allows you, that actually does a 9% matching for wow. um, for 501. They give you two choices. You can do a 501K or you can do a Roth. I'm trying to decide yeah. which of the two should I do. Yeah. Or should what I is, try to split it if I can? I'm sorry. Sure. No, that's okay. What is your age, Chad? I am 65 years old. Okay. And how long do you plan to continue to work? Uh, as long as I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, there's something to be said about that traditional 401k in this season of life. You know, if if you were 20 years younger, maybe even 10 years younger, I would have said, let's go with the Roth. You're probably, I would suspect, at the peak of your earning potential, which means you're in the highest tax bracket you will be, uh, because when you are in retirement, your income drops and your taxes drop with that. Plus, the benefit, the true benefit of the Roth is the tax-free growth over a long period of time. So I think you would benefit a bit more today from that uh, traditional 401k and the deduction than you would the after-tax contribution with the tax-free growth. So I'd go with the traditional 401k, but take full advantage of that 9% match, Chad. That's incredible. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Well, it's great to have you with us today on a Friday afternoon as we apply God's wisdom to your financial decisions and choices. I'm Rob West. We're taking your calls and questions at 800-525-7000. We've got uh, plenty of time remaining in the program. We've got some lines open, so whatever's on your mind today, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Let's head back to the phones. Grand Rapids, Michigan. Daniel, thanks for calling today, sir. How can I help you? Rob, thank you so much for taking my call. I love your show. Well, thank you. uh, My my wife and I are in our uh, upper 70s, and okay. uh, recently w- when the market was uh, 
taking a real downturn. Um, we did something that we shouldn't have done, and that is, I think, after listening to you, uh, we've drawn our money out of the market, and the market has just steadily gone up uh, quite a bit. And yeah. we're just wondering, um, uh, what we'd like to, should we get back in the market, and if so, when? Yeah. Well, it just depends on whether it's going up or down from here. Do you know which one it is, Daniel? <laughs> I'm um, just kidding. <laughs> None of us can know, and th- and that's the point. So here's the idea. You're right. I, if you would have called me prior to getting out, I would have said, ah, oh, let's not do that. Let's wait for it to recover. You know, whenever we get into these periods like we're in right now, uh, especially following a 12 year raging bull market, and then we hit 40 year high inflation because of an easy money policy over a long period of time, and we hit a pandemic and just a host of other issues, and now we're facing the prospect of a a recession, but really it's the runaway inflation that was driving the downside. The reason that has changed is we've seen that even though the Fed has been laser focused on getting inflation under control, which meant you know interest rates going up rapidly, um, now that we've seen just in the last several weeks and even this week again that inflation perhaps is beginning to turn the corner, that maybe the Fed can back off, and that's where this $2 trillion that was on the sideline has started to rush back into this market, which just gives us some sense of the pent-up demand out there for stocks and for capital to be deployed into the equity markets when that time comes. Now, could we retest those lows in the next month, six months, year? Absolutely. I mean, we still have some real challenges out there. And, you know, the Fed's attempt to get the interest, uh, the inflation down is really going to come down to, are they going to be happy with 4%? Are they going to insist on their target of 2% inflation? And if so, they may need to leave uh, these interest rates at this point or even higher for a considerable amount of time. And that really could lead us into a a recession, even a pretty significant one. And if so, this market will come down. So the thing we don't want you to do, Daniel, is to kind of get that whiplash where you get out at the bottom, so to speak, or after a significant decline, the market goes up, you jump back in, then the market goes down again, we get out, and then we just keep capturing these downside periods. So I think the, the next step is really to determine what is the right allocation for you all, not over the next you know, six months or a year, but over the next 10 or 20 years, because if the Lord tarries and you're in good health, you may need this money, you know, to last for another couple of decades. Um, but the question is, what is the right mix of stocks and bonds and other investment instruments uh, for you at this time? So if you don't mind me asking, what do you have roughly in investable assets and are you pulling an income from it? Uh Yes, we are taking an income. We have about 700000 Okay. And how much are you pulling out annually? Uh, about 30000 Okay. All right. Which is about what I would, uh, you know, have expected. I mean, that's a 4% withdrawal rate, just slightly more than that. And that's a pretty good number. So if it's managed properly, you should be able to offset that. And typically we would say, and this is just typically, because that doesn't mean it's exactly right for you. Uh, you would have maybe a 30% allocation of stocks in there, 60 to 70% in bonds. Um, now, even, you know, in this market, bonds have taken a real beating as well. They're in a bear market also just 
just because of the rapid rise of the interest rates. But in a typical market, and we would have to wait it out, you know, that would provide more stability to the portfolio, more income, and then the stock portion would give you a growth component so you could overcome that 4% withdrawal rate and essentially maintain the balance. Now, in any given year or two, it may be down, but over the long haul, we would, you know, expect that this portfolio would at least stay stable and accommodate your, you know, withdrawals or your distributions from these portfolios. Um, so I think the question is, you know, are you um, going to continue to make these decisions yourself or do you want to turn this over to an advisor who, based on your goals and objectives, would be the one to make the buying and selling decisions? Because the last thing I'd want you to do is begin to move back into the market if you're you know going to get into a situation where you could find yourself pulling it back out i you know i just i would rather you stay on the sideline for now if you thought that was a possibility what are your thoughts though well my thoughts are i'd probably like to have somebody uh, manage it you know yeah, uh, yeah. talk to somebody and just have them give me some advice here and then follow that yeah yeah. Uh, or even I would suggest hiring an investment advisor who would ultimately make the buying and selling decisions. But with your, again, your goals and interests in mind, open and clear communication, you know, uh, but you want to have a disciplined kind of rules based strategy where everybody's bought into it, that it makes sense and that we can just really trust the long term plan, even at age 70 and not react to the ebbs and flows of the market, because that's just really where it can create some challenges challenges. Uh, you know, we really want to stay invested as long as we have the right mix of investments, even in these down periods. And I realize that's difficult to do when we see kind of our hard-earned wealth beginning to evaporate. The tendency is to just kind of flee for safety. And as long as we trust the process and stay long-term in our view, then I think we should be able to weather those storms and, you know, temper the portfolio so it's not down an inordinate amount. So what I'd recommend you do, Daniel, is contact a certified kingdom advisor there in Grand Rapids. There's some great ones. Just go to our website, moneywise.org, click find a CKA. I'd interview two or three and find the one that's the best fit. But I think the key is you and your wife really need to be committed that once you make that decision and you begin to move back into the market, whether you do it yourself or you hire somebody, that you really are going to stay with your plan no matter what happens in the market. And I think that really will be essential to you having some good long-term success. The good news is you've got quite a bit of assets, plenty to support the income that you need. So you're in good shape. I think we just need the right investment strategy and uh, you'll be all set. Thanks for calling today. A quick break and then back to your calls and questions just around the corner. This is Money wise live Great to have you with us today on Money Wise Live here on Moody Radio. I'm Rob West, your host. We're taking your calls and questions on anything financial, 800-525-7000. Back to uh, Chicago, Maria. Thank you for calling. Go right ahead. Hi, thank you for taking my call, Rob. Um, yes, my husband and I, we had $40,000 in our 401k, and we took that money out about two months ago, and we paid off our mortgage. We did take a big uh, penalty, which was $10,000, and because we paid off our mortgage earlier, we also saved $10,000. So I'm thinking we broke even, but my question is, do we still have to pay taxes on that money, and will that money boost us up to a higher tax bracket? Um, I'm working part-time. I make about $30,000. 
So would that forty thousand be added to my thirty thousand? It would, yes. Uh, so you're right. Um, and when you take that out, if you do it before 59 and a half, unless there's for uh, some reason that excludes the penalty, you've got that 10% penalty, and then uh, you have that added to your taxable income. Now, you said you took a $40,000 distribution. Is that right? Right. But we're 66 years old. So we took it okay. when yeah. we were 66. And so why did you have a penalty? And, and even then at 10%, it should have only been about $4,000. Hmm. Okay, I need to go back and look. I don't know. Oh, yeah, well, it could you know, be. we had go ahead. like 20, we had, it, we had two different ones. Okay. We had one, the, uh, one for so many thousand, but it added up to 40000 Yeah, and these came out of a retirement account? Yes. Okay. And you were over 59 and a half, correct? Yes. Okay. What could have happened here, Maria, is that they withheld uh, a portion for the taxes because you shouldn't have had a penalty on this. Uh, over 59 and a half, you can take money out of a retirement account uh, as long as that wasn't an annuity and you were paying a penalty to an insurance company. But if it was like an IRA or a 401k uh, or a 403b, you can pull that money out. There should not have been any penalty, but they may have held back money that was going to be applied to the taxes. So you're going to want to look at that. But yes, um, whatever uh, amount you took out in the year that you took the distribution, it will be added to your taxable income and absolutely could put you in a higher tax bracket. For instance, the uh, married filing jointly, the 12% tax bracket goes up to $40,525 in adjusted gross income. When you go above that, between 40 and about 86,000, that um, tax goes from 12 to 22%. So there's a big jump there. Now, it doesn't put all of your income up in that next bracket. You pay... uh, uh, you know, the appropriate rate for that particular portion of your income. But if you're making right up near that 40000 for married filing jointly already, then it could be that that whole 40000 is no longer taxed at the 12%, but jumps up to the 22. Um, so you are going to owe taxes. The question is, why are you hearing the word penalty? Because there shouldn't be. And let's figure out what was that ten thousand that um, you know either that was withheld, and and is that money that was either sent to the IRS as a prepayment of what you will owe, or is it being held for that purpose? You really need to get to the bottom of that. Okay, let let me double check that. Uh, one more question: Do I have time? Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Okay. We have several thousand dollars now that we can invest. Where could we put that? Um, We want to save for our grandkids. We have seven grandkids, and we want to save money for them. Okay. Uh, And how much money did you say you had for that purpose? Um, We just have like, you know, maybe two or three thousand that now that we don't have our mortgage or any other debt that's above what we – what we're paying on, you know, just, just our regular so money you'd put that we in owe because we don't have Perhaps a debt. couple of hundred dollars a month you'd add to this? Um, thousand. Some thousand, yeah, a couple of thousand Right, but, but would you be adding to it uh, on a regular basis or would you just invest this lump sum and not any add anything else? Right. We'll be adding okay. to it. 
You would be adding. Okay. And do you want to earmark it for college specifically, Maria, or do you want it to be more widely available? Widely, not just okay. for college. Okay. And what, what do you think is the time horizon on this? I mean, when might you want to start taking a portion of it out to give to some of the grandkids? In the next five years, or are you thinking 10 or more? Yeah, 10 or more, because we have little grandkids. I see. Okay, very good. I would probably uh, just use either a high-quality mutual fund, and our friends at soundmindinvesting.org could help you with that, or you could use one of the robo-advisors like uh, the Schwab Intelligent Portfolios or Betterment. Uh, so that's Schwab Intelligent Portfolios or Betterment. What I would do is open a joint account in the name of you and your husband, drop this money in, and then set up an automatic uh, uh, transfer from your checking account every time you get your uh, paycheck into this account to be reinvested. And the key with those um, robo-advisors is it's very low cost, so it might be 20 basis points, so one-fifth of 1%. And you're basically going to get a, a portfolio of indexes. So you're just going to mirror the, the overall performance of the broad stock and bond market, uh, not trying to pick the winners and losers. And you'll see good growth in that over the long haul. And I think that's the key. And the good news is that with these robo-advisors, they're really set up for an automatic contribution like you want to do. So there's no transaction costs. Every time you make another deposit of a couple of hundred dollars per month, let's say, it would automatically be reinvested and there wouldn't be any additional cost for that. And you could just systematically make those contributions and then you all would control how that money is then distributed to the kids or grandkids down the road. So I'd check out either the Schwab Intelligent Portfolios or Betterment, open a joint account, make the deposit, and after you answer all the questions, they'll just automatically invest that for you in the way that I described, okay? Excellent. Thank you so much. And can, do we have to put this in our will, divide it up uh, like that in our will? No, you could uh, name a beneficiary on the account. So you would uh, just divide it equally between the grandkids or you could leave it to your kids and tell them it's for the grandkids, however you want to do that. But when you name a beneficiary on an investment brokerage account, it passes outside of your estate and it does not subject to the will. Okay. Oh, thank you so much. That's great. All right. Great. Excellent. Well, thank you for calling, Maria. God bless you. Uh, Quickly to Chattanooga. Hey, May, how can I help you? Uh, Yes, sir. We have a... Thank you for taking our call. Sure. We we have a home equity line of credit um, loan taken out on our home. We took it out to get some repairs done. Mm Mm-hmm. And we owe about $15,410 now. And my question is, would it be a smart thing to take out a different kind of loan and pay this one off so we wouldn't have anything attached to our home? Well, that would be Um, ideal because I'd rather the home not be collateralized. The challenge is with rates where they are, you're probably going to pay a lot more in interest. 
to try to go out and find that non-collateralized loan versus the home equity loan that has a fixed interest rate. You probably got it when rates were lower than they are today. So I'd probably just leave it there and try to make accelerated payments between now and when it's paid off. Keep your spending down, try to free up as much as you can every month and just pay toward it. Probably not going to make sense to refinance it. I've got to take a break, but we'll talk a little bit more off the air to see if you have any questions. And we'll be right back on MoneyWise Live. Stay with us. Great to have you with us on Money Wise Live. I'm Rob West, your host. Before we go back to the phones, it's Friday. That means our good friend Jerry Boyer stops by with his market analysis and commentary. And uh, Jerry, wow, the strength in the stock market as of late on the heels of this, I guess, better than expected inflation data has been phenomenal. What do you make of it? Well, what I make of it is that the uh, theme continues to be that uh, the most important actor in markets is the central bank, the Fed, um, and that the the Fed really doesn't want to end the party. The Fed really doesn't want to get criticized. They don't want to impose pain. They don't want to cause a recession. Uh, They don't want people um, castigating them at dinner parties and saying, what are you doing to my 401k? Uh, So they want to be nice. You know, they want to keep creating money and putting it into the system. But on the other hand, they've got this mandate that says they have to fight inflation. So if inflation is high, they've got to fight it, uh, which hurts markets and hurts hurts growth. So what happened with the better than expected inflation number is that that gives the Fed the leeway to not be so tough on inflation. That gives them – and we immediately saw the Fed funds futures – sorry, getting a little technical. The market has an implied. Um, a set of expectations about what the Fed's going to do in the future. And there was a significant shift when that inflation report came out that said they're going to not raise as much as we used to think, and they're going to reverse course uh, sooner than we think. Probably early uh, next summer, they're actually going to start cutting again. So basically, wow. it was permission for the Fed to stop, be, stop with the tough love uh, and uh, maybe lighten up a little bit on fighting inflation and continue to inject money into the system. Which perhaps also says, Jerry, that we're not going to learn our lesson from this one. And if we go back to easy money policies, why wouldn't we expect that inflation is going to continue to be a problem in the days ahead? Yeah, and it's interesting. The real paradox here is that the, you know, the data came out and said inflation is not as high as we expected. And the immediate was, response was for inflation hedges to rise. So we said, wait, is inflation good or bad? And the answer is, all right, well, we got a little relief. Let me give you an example. Uh, So someone, you know, they step on the scale and they're having trouble losing weight and they step on the scale, uh, you know, one week and they're down three pounds. So, you know, I guess we can treat ourselves to, you know, a little bit of apple pie because, you know, our weight's down. So the basic idea is that, you know, hey, we're doing pretty well in fighting inflation. And the market said, okay, what that really means is you're not going to fight inflation so hard anymore, which means we're going to get more inflation. So what do we see happen this week? Gold rose and the dollar fell and inflation protected uh, bonds. They're called tips. Those rose as well. So all of the inflation hedges rose, except for cryptos, and they fell for, I think, for different reasons. 
Well, to your point about the Fed being the dominant driver of market action, you know, this was during a week where we didn't get the red wave quite the way we thought we would. And to the extent the market was really looking for that uh, based on the policy outcomes and how that would affect business, you would have thought the market would sell off. Yeah, and it did. The market did yeah. sell off after, as, the, as it was becoming clear that you weren't getting the red wave. The market started selling off a little bit on Tuesday and definitely sold off on Wednesday. Yeah. But here's the, here's the interesting thing. If you look at an experiment, what matters more, right? Who wins the election or what the central bank's going to do? Well, this week we had both things. Right. Uh, and the market got what it would see as disappointing news in that the, quote, pro-growth party didn't win. Um, and so it went down. But what happened is on Thursday when we found out inflation is lower, therefore the Fed's going to be able to you know, pump money into the system for longer. All of those trades reversed, and they reversed so much that the market is actually on net up for the week. So yeah. it, we, we got to kind of weigh those two things next to one another. What matters more, Republicans yeah. having a red wave or um, the central bank being easy longer? And the answer is – uh, the Fed being easier longer had a bigger impact on markets. It is, in some sense, that's saying that the Fed is more important for our economic growth um, and our prosperity than who wins elections. Uh, clearly. Uh, Jerry, before we let you go, just quickly, I'd love your comments on what's going on in the crypto markets. I mean, clearly the idea behind cryptos that it's attractive because it's not tied to a central bank uh, is part of the problem when these markets have problems, correct? Yeah, it is, because the original idea of a central bank wasn't for it to bail things. It wasn't for it to, you know, and control the money supply and go back and forth between dual mandates. The original idea is it's a lender of last resort when you're in trouble. So if you have a lot of bankruptcies or a lot of banks look like, look like they're going to fail, a national bank steps in and lends for a short period of time to get you through the tough, tough part. Well, the yeah. cryptocurrencies don't have a central bank, which means they can't get bailed out. They don't have FDIC, which means that the deposits aren't guaranteed. You know, the exchanges, uh, whole, this whole system that came about around Bitcoin and then later Ether, all of that financial system and there's borrowing against it and there's leverage just like with the banking system, but there's no institution to bail it out, which means when you hit a rough spot, then it really collapses in a way that the normal banking system doesn't. So what's the rough spot? Well, partly the rough spot, it got over leveraged. It just wasn't in a good position. But the other rough spot is the Democrats are seen as more likely to regulate crypto and they have so far so if you didn't get a red wave that means you're probably going to have a government regime that is less friendly to crypto so the the election on tuesday didn't just have implications for regular markets it had had implications it's signaling that the regulators especially the cftc is going to be tougher on cryptos than if the republicans are there kind of standing up for it so that's why that's why cryptos were the only inflation hedge that went down rather than up. Because even though they're supposed to be a hedge against inflation, if they're going to get regulated too heavily and they, but, and they don't have the bailout, then that put them in trouble. And that's reflecting itself in an ongoing collapse in that sector. Uh, yeah. Now you've got uh, cryptocurrency exchanges filing for bankruptcy. Fascinating. We'll continue to watch this, Jerry. Always appreciate your comments, my friend. Have a wonderful weekend. 
Same to you. Bye-bye. All right. God bless. Jerry Boyer, president of Boyer Research. You'll find his insightful articles at the Christian Post. And uh, we welcome Jerry each Friday afternoon. All right. uh, Back to the phones here in our final moments of the broadcast today. Uh, Driving through Chicago is David. Uh, David, I understand you are a veteran. Is that right, sir? Yes, sir. Well, on this day where we honor men and women who have served in the U.S. Armed Forces, we say, we say uh, thank you for your service to you and all of those uh, listening to the broadcast today. How can I help you, sir? Well, yeah, I, my question, first of all, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, my question was, because I am a veteran, I was looking at the VA loan. Uh, uh, we live in an apartment right now, and I was just thinking, uh, could I use the VA loan to get another apartment to pay for another apartment? Uh, no, uh, you would. You can't use a VA loan to pay rent for an apartment. Uh, now you could buy a property like a duplex, a duplex where you've got two units in one, uh, you know, property, and you could rent out part of it as you, as long as uh, you live in the other half as your primary residence. Um, and then after you live in a VA financed property for a year, you could rent out the uh, the property. Um, but in terms of you just using the VA uh, to be able to rent an apartment, uh, you really can't do that. It really is for a purchase. I see. Okay. Well, that uh, pretty much answers my question then. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And again, thank you for your service, uh, David. We appreciate it very, very much. Uh, To Antioch, Illinois, Rose, uh, thanks for calling. Go right ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I've got a quick question. We had a contractor come by and that he could get us money uh, based on hail damage on our roof, and he did. He, we got a $10,000 check, but right now, due to an illness and loss of a job, um, we're waiting on disability. We can't repair the roof right now. We're looking to possibly or hopefully, fingers crossed, sell next year. With that $10,000 in the bank, where does that stand? Is that something we can go ahead and say we're giving that $10,000 to the person that's going to buy our house? Um, yeah, well, uh, they were making you whole for the cost of that repair. And if you choose not to do it, uh, you know, that's up to you, but clearly if you were to sell it, you would need to disclose that there is a problem with the roof and then you could discount the property or perhaps make a a concession as a seller for this $10,000, you know, that could be put toward repairs. Um, you know, if there is an active and ongoing issue, you that's you know damaging the property further you at least need to mitigate that you know problem so it doesn't create more damage but if it's not really an issue and it's just something that needs to be disclosed to the buyer then you know they would typically want you to provide some sort of concession for them to uh, resolve the issue upon their purchase or they might ask you to do it uh, before you move out um, why is it that you the amount that you received was less than the actual cost of the repair the house is 20 years old, and it's just hail damage. We don't have any leaks or anything like that. So um, it was just the insurance gave us what they thought the roof was worth minus whatever our deductible was. 
Okay. All right. Very good. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think if there's not any kind of active issue uh, leak or anything that's creating, you know, further damage to the property, you know, one option is just to see what the buyer's inspection reveals. If there's not really, if it's normal wear and tear on the property, uh, now they may, after inspection, come back and say, listen, we're seeing, you know, the effects of hail over a long period of time. We think this roof needs to be replaced. And you could negotiate as a part of the sale some, you know, sort of uh, seller concession toward the roof, and perhaps you use this money to make that possible. I think the key right now is if you guys want to move out, I'd probably you know go ahead and list it and just know that this could be an issue that surfaces. And the good news is, as long as you haven't spent that money, you have the ability to use it for negotiation with the buyer. Perfect. Okay, that's what I needed to know. Thanks a lot for your help. Okay. Very good. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Uh, let's see. Kaziah, I see your question there on I-bonds. How does the interest work? Uh, it's credited when you redeem it. It's a 30-year bond, but you can pull it out anytime after a year. If you take it out in less than five years, you'll have a penalty of three months' worth of interest. But whatever you're entitled to, it's credited on redemption, and then you just pay taxes on it. Thanks for calling today. Leah, Ricardo, I'd love to get to you next week. We appreciate you being on the program. Money Wise Live is a partnership between Moody Radio and MoneyWise Media. Thank you to Clara, Amy, Jim, and Chris. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.